Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unpredictable and often challenging times that we're living in. My name is Brett Kane, and I'll be your travel guide on this journey. And together, we'll explore a wide variety of topics that I think are crucial for maintaining a sense of equipose in today's times. Joining us on the show today to do just that is an incredible yoga teacher by the name of Tracy Stanley. Tracy is the author of the best-selling book, Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity. She's also on the cusp of releasing her forthcoming book, The Luminous Self, Sacred Yogic Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are, of which will be a large part of what we'll be discussing on today's episode. Beyond that, she's the founder of the Empowered Life Circle, which is a sacred community and portal of practices, rituals, and tantric teachings inspired by more than 20 years of study in Shravidya Tantra. As I said, this conversation revolves around the topics of her newest book, The Luminous Self, and in it we cover a wide range of ideas from exploring the realms of internal yoga, the importance of self-inquiry, how to find the kinds of support that you're needing in your journey, and of course, Yoga Nidra. It's a packed conversation with a lot of pithy wisdom and encouragement from Tracy, so I hope that you enjoy this offering. Before we get into it, though, some brief housekeeping. Tracy's very sweet publisher, Shambhala, is offering 30% off The Luminous Self for those who pre-order a copy over at Shambhala.com using the code LUM30, that is L-U-M-30. The book is out on October 10th, so if you're listening to this before then, do not wait. Go get yourself a copy of this today. Beyond that, if you want to stay plugged in with Tracy's work, head on over to tracystanley.com for a whole slew of online content. She's got courses, teachings, and a podcast called Radiant Rest, which I've listened to and can strongly recommend. If you want to support this show, implementing any of the practices that we cover on this platform and writing to me about them is the best way to do it. The thing that I desire most with doing this work is to simply introduce people to practices or systems that they really resonate with. You can also do the whole digital age shuffle and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or subscribe over on YouTube. Lastly, I do have a Patreon, which serves as a tip jar over at patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism. That is enough from me, though, so let's get to it. Sit back, maybe drink some tea, do some stretches. Whatever you do, most importantly, open your heart for Tracy Stanley. Tracy, hello. We are now live. Uh, I just want to start off by saying thank you, first and foremost, for gracing me with some of your time. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are we doing today? Thank you so much for inviting me. Really happy to be here. I'm doing great today. I'm preparing for uh, a trip to Los Angeles. So there's a lot of moving parts that are happening right now in the household. <laughs> That's great. What's bringing you to L.A.? A uh, friend's wedding. Oh, fun. Yeah. I got one of those this weekend too, actually. So yeah, that's great. 
So for my listeners uh, who might not be too familiar with you, I, I've been familiar with your work for the past, I say, year and a half after hearing you on Michelle C. Johnson's podcast. I was like, wow, I really appreciated your presence and just the field of study that you're offering. Originally, my interest was with the Yoga Nidra, but after we had had a brief contact, uh, I got a copy of your new book. Oh, that's so great. I. Yeah, I would love to explore this, this luminous self. And in order to start that, I wanted to just very ask you very plainly, what exactly is the luminous self? And what is your journey of discovering this nature of being? And you know, whatever you feel is relevant for helping listeners who are very unfamiliar with that kind of tune in. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I think about it is the luminous self is who we really are. It's a part of us that is eternal radiant, whole, well, always at rest. It's the place within us that is sometimes really hard to even know exists because the overculture really wants us to believe that there's something outside of us, something external that will make us happy and feel whole. And so the luminous self to me is about coming back to who we really are and doing the work to kind of peel the layers of who we are not away. Yeah. So what I found to be really interesting about the book is the amount of stories that you tell about your life and kind of the journey that kind of brought you to this understanding, um, with one of the big ones being after you had this life that you created with, you know, you were running a yoga studio, you had the, the job, you had the marriage. And, you know, I think it was your teacher that told you, just kind of like, you don't know yourself. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to paraphrase that, and there's a lot more to that that's really rich, but you know, as somebody who had developed just so much of their life in a way that many people would look at and be like, wow, they are really together, they really have a distinct sense of who they are, you know, what about that kind of transition into kind of like not knowing and then knowing, like how did that all unfold for you? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. So... You know, the interesting thing was towards the beginning of my journey um, working in Hollywood and having a successful career, I found yoga. So it was like 1995 that I actually took my first yoga class. And my career started really taking off in about 2001, which is the same time that I found a teacher who was the first one to say, I don't think you've ever tasted your true nature. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean? <laughs> what, is, what is that? When, and how would you even know that? And that start, started to kind of lead me into this inquiry of who am I? Who am I really? And as I started to think about those questions, that is, I think, really the one question that propelled me on to this path of seeking and moving away from kind of a lot of the external practices of yoga that I had been doing prior to that, which was very asana-based. Um, and then I was introduced to this uh, lineage of Sri Vidya Tantra and the yoga of the Himalayan masters, introduced to deeper practices of self-inquiry and vichara. And continually, as I was doing that, it was like this simultaneous path of getting deeper in yoga and becoming more successful in my career. And I was, as I was becoming more successful in my career, I was also noticing that the people that I was surrounded by who were 
many times way more successful than I was, quote unquote, right, the success, is that there was this outer success, there was this outer abundance, but there seemed to be this kind of spiritual poverty, this kind of inner poverty. And a lot of times what started to happen was that people would ask me, well, what is it that you're doing? You know, they could somehow sense that there was something different, something more calm, more peaceful, less reactionary. Um, And then I decided to open a yoga studio because I wanted people to have more access to those teachings. I had no intention on ever teaching yoga. It was all about just having a place for people to practice. So simultaneously, I had this career as a producer and I was a studio owner. And I really think that those, the path of those two things happening simultaneously shifted the course of my life in a way that I just kept going deeper into the yoga practices and into the inquiries and realizing that I was much more than who I thought I was. And I really wanted to know what, what that was. And I'm still on that journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you make the distinction between the external yoga practice and then that there's actually like an internal one. I think a lot of modern day practitioners kind of get caught in the external, at least from my experience of interacting with a bunch of different people. And could you describe just that transition? Like what about the external and the internal practices is so different? Yeah, I think that's really hard to kind of put into words, but I think that the external practice, the the asana practices are very important because to me and my experience, they have been a portal to lead into that inner space, right? Into that inner awareness. And maybe we can think about it as we come to yoga, you know, to get stronger, to become less stressful, whatever it is, the reason that has brought us to yoga practice. At some point when you're in your yoga practice, you start to realize, oh, I'm becoming aware that there's energy moving. I'm becoming aware that maybe I'm here lying in Shavasana and I can't feel where my body ends and the floor begins. And all of a sudden now I feel spacious and expansive and I feel connected to everything. And maybe as I'm continuing in my my yoga practice, I have an epiphany that seems to drop down from out of nowhere that becomes this like intuitive inspiration that maybe shifts the trajectory of my life if I actually listen to it. And so to me, those are the internal ways in which the practice starts to wake you up to your energy body, to your mental body, to your wisdom body, to your bliss body, moving you away from this um, kind of identification that all we are is this name and form. Mm -hmm. So once you start to make contact with that kind of internal spacious quality, how does that affect your external practice? You know, like, I'm sure it kind of goes both ways, like they inform each other. So as you're doing just kind of like a sun salutation, like does that take on a different connotation and different kind of feel to it? Well, I can only speak for myself, <laughs> but yeah. I think that when um, I was practicing a lot of vinyasa and a lot of power yoga and started to have these experiences, again, they were just a portal into a deeper awareness. Um, and so I think the reason for practicing yoga 
became a different reason, a different intention. And I think that intention is everything with whatever it is that you're doing. So instead of the intention being, oh, I want to get stronger or I want to appease my ego by, you know, nailing a handstand in the middle of the room. It's like, I want to contact that part of myself that is beyond name and form in my practice. That becomes a completely different practice than something that's outwardly focused. Mm. You know, you've mentioned the idea of name and form kind of being something that we're maybe a little like caught in. And I feel like from my experience, I'm more aligned with the, the Buddhist system, though I do also like the Anasari yoga as well. Um, and, you know, I found that with this idea of name and form, it is such a deeply woven structure within our being that is just so hard to actually see. You know, it's more than just like this person. It's just so deep, you know, so is it possible that we can engage in spiritual practice and be very invested in that and still be operating from the idea of name and form and how can we like sense whether or not we're doing that well i mean i think the you know the essential question that sri ramana maharshi asked is who am i right mm -hmm. and if you can do a practice that allows you to um, kind of contemplate the impermanent and you begin to ask yourself let me release everything that is impermanent and only hold on to that which is true and eternal, pretty soon you're gonna get to the point where your body and who you think you are is impermanent. And maybe you get to a place within that feels more eternal and connected. And so that to me is a very long haul practice. That is the idea for me of being devoted to daily practice every day to allow that awareness to continue to reveal itself because we forget, right? It's like you have a glimpse of light, you have a glimpse of something that, oh, I'm more than just my name, I'm more than just my identity, I'm more than just my house or, you know, the things that I own. And then a day later, you forget. And so I do feel that this life is about the remembering and the forgetting and the remembering and the forgetting and that flow that comes with life. But if we don't have a devoted practice, even if it's just a five minute a day practice, it's really hard to get back into the flow of the remembering. So yeah, for me, I, I went through a phase when I first started the whole spiritual pursuit where I was investing a lot of time and money in getting to these you know, like retreats or festivals or these really big experiences that were really, they felt very transformational and turning. But then it would always kind of come back to my regular day to day living and i didn't really have a practice then and you know, i noticed in those moments where i was like that kind of transformation it was almost like a high it would it would like be like wow i've really done something and then back to the job that i don't like reacting to things in the way that i don't like you know and, uh, same as you it took like day to day practice there's something my teacher said about it's like stringing beads on a mala and you start with like just a few, but then you keep stringing more and more on until it's continuous. So I think that that's, yeah, I love, that is I wildly love that. important. Yeah, no, it is. You, if you want to have a spiritual life, you can't bifurcate your life into this is what happens when I go on retreat and this is how I behave when I'm at home. <laughs> you have, yeah. there has to be an integration. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 
For people who don't have spiritual practice, I know this conversation can be kind of like heavy-handed for people who maybe only associate spirituality with religiosity. I know a lot of us here in the West have kind of like a religious trauma. You know, a lot of people grew up in kind of uh, really restrictive home environments and religion was used as a way to kind of clamp them down. You know, how would you describe to these people kind of the difference between spiritual practice which helps us have this ex actual experience and then what they may have grown up with which was very um, more restrictive and shame-filled well i mean i think this is that's a very nuanced um question because you can definitely have the similar experience of what you're talking about in religion in spiritual lineages there can be a lot of shame there can be a lot of patriarchy hierarchy um, abuse even. So I don't know that we want to say that those things don't happen in a spiritual community. What I think is um, more important is this idea that there is not something outside of you that has the power, that has more power, that you yourself are whole inherently, you are powerful, you are knowing inherently. And it's really about you going inward to find that those answers, as opposed to you going outward to an outer force. That That's what I would say. Yeah. So I guess with that kind of context, what role does the teacher play in that? Because I think a lot of people who first get into these practices are like, if I need a teacher, like, isn't that kind of externalizing and like following their guidance or? Well, we're making the assumption that we need a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. But make, staying with that assumption that we need a teacher, the teacher or what's often called in yoga or in other practices, the guru, right? Which I feel like that, that name has kind of been abused a bit, right? It literally means someone or or the one who brings you from the darkness into the light. And it's not that that person is taking you by the hand and leading you to the light somewhere on a high mountaintop. They're guiding you back to the light within your own self. And so the first thing I think for us to look for when we're looking for a teacher is someone who is constantly pointing you back to yourself, to your own inner beauty, your own power, your own knowing, and giving you tools to be able to peel away anything that stands in the way of that, right? If a teacher, in my opinion, is telling you, I'm the one that has the answer, I'm the one that you have to follow in order to become enlightened or free, that to me becomes a problem. Mm. It sounds like a really good sales pitch for your book. <laughs> that was kind of my, my experience, the first one, not the second one, with the, the amount of practices that are in there. And what I really appreciated about it, um, even in the yogic um, context, is the amount of reflection and the amount that your book, it kind of felt like looking in a mirror there's like your stories, you're like, hey, this is what my experience was, but here's an opportunity for your experience. So where does reflection and contemplation fall into the yogic system? Because it's not one, I'm more familiar with like the Buddhist approach to it, but it is, doesn't it have a name in yoga as yeah, well? Yeah, in yoga, self-inquiry is also known as vichara. And vichara, um, from one of the translations that I'm familiar with, 
is around this idea of deliberation, deliberating about a thing until you understand the origin of it. We could even say deliberating about something until you understand the cause of it or until you understand the cure of it, right? And so if, for me, self-inquiry comes in so many different forms, but it's one of the most important things in my practice, which is why I share them so much, these self-inquiry questions so much in my work, because it has led me to be able to peel away the layers of what's not true to get to the truth. It's been able to, it's a, it, self-inquiry has just helped me um, to be able to see more clearly and to be able to develop this kind of quality of discernment and critical thinking. When something arises, the first thing I do is I ask myself the question that I least want to ask myself in the moment, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that I can get clarity and that I can, I'm not afraid um, of of digging in. Uh, so I think that self-inquiry is really important. Um, I think that it helps to integrate the practices and the experience of the practices that we have. I think it helps to um, nourish us after we've had a lot of spaciousness, because I think sometimes in yoga classes or even in retreats, sometimes we have these spacious, expansive experiences and then we don't have the moment or the time to actually process and integrate them by either writing about them or talking about them in a way that can be remembered, right? So when you're mm. writing, you don't have to be a writer, but when you're writing free, free writing and you're asking yourself these questions, you go back to that later and you can remember because it's there. It's not something that is so subtle which a lot of times the feelings and the inspirations we get after practice are very subtle and ethereal. It's very easy for them to blow away in the wind. So for us to practice self-inquiry along with free writing is a way for us to hold on to the experience a little bit longer so that it has time to integrate and process. At least that's how I feel about self-inquiry in my own practice. That's beautiful. Do you have any recommendations for how to is create the container for self-reflection. You know, I feel like, so, like, I know for me, whenever I've done these kinds of exercises, I found that it's just really helped to not just kind of speedily jot it down and then move on and make dinner. Is there anything that you do within your practice to really create a container to allow those deeper insights to kind of spring up? Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, when I'm teaching and when I'm practicing, the self-inquiry and the spaciousness that's required to write is part of the practice, right? So if I know that, let's say if I'm teaching a, a class or a course, that's integrated into the time. I know that I want to leave 15, 20 minutes for people to be able to be in that space. If I'm doing my own practice, I know that I'm going to I'm not going to have some, another meeting, you know, coming up behind this. I'm going to give myself the spaciousness to write, to use my voice recorder, to walk out in nature, to do the things that help me um, to have the spaciousness. And I think that when we create these containers for our practice, we have to create sacred boundaries. Um, and sometimes that might look like talking to the people in your home to let them know 
this is the amount of time that I'm going to be offline. Can you help to protect this space for me? You know, I've had, and I wrote about this in Radiant Rest, I've had friends who basically will go into the garage, into their car and do their practice because that's really the only place where they can go where they're not going to be interrupted. So find a space, create some sacred boundaries, know um, yourself, like know how much time does it take for you to do the certain practice and how much time would you like to have to integrate that practice afterwards before rushing off to the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, for a while was doing these, this practice called morning pages, which is from Julia Cameron. And it's literally, as soon as you wake up, you just write two pages without stopping. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of like helps drain the brain a little bit. But what I found when I was doing that practice is a lot of it was very, uh, not, insightful not really useful to anybody you know so when we're doing these contemplations like how do we relate to the thoughts that are coming up is it kind of a first thought best thought that's probably your juiciest or do you typically find yourself having to write a little bit and then like near the end you say like a sentence that's like oh my god you know like how do you gauge what is insightful and what's just kind of maybe regurgitated from the thinking mind? That's a really interesting question because to me, I think when we let go of trying to mine something or extract something from our practice, that's really when the beauty comes forward. So Mm. much like the morning pages, my suggestion is to free write, is to free write without, you know, you have a self-inquiry question like in the book, whether it's Luminous Self or the Radiant um, Rest book, They all have self-inquiry questions. And the idea is for you to free write without thinking about grammar, without thinking about spelling, without thinking about extracting something like amazing from, you know, the question, but just being in your heart space and answering the question and free writing, knowing that no one else is going to read it. And what I have learned over 20 years of doing these self-inquiry practices with people is that the most profound things come out in those moments because you're still connected to the subtle awareness of whatever came through in your practice. And it also, I think that practice of self-inquiry and free writing empowers our practice of, or our our ability um, to retain and to remember what is important and what is essential. And that's something that I think we've forgotten. We've, we've been trained to forget because of all the distractions. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing that you said about the distinction between trying to extract something from our spiritual practice or this exercise. And I found that when I look back on my early years getting into spirituality, there was that kind of extractive kind of mining quality. And then I would almost immediately go share it and get like either clout or whatever it was. And I feel like there's something about the Western mind that we naturally are kind of conditioned to treat things like this in a very materialistic, transactional way. It's like, well, how, it's like, if I'm going to do yoga for a year, what am I getting out of it? More than just the body, but like, am I going to get some, some peace? Like, I don't want to do it unless I get something, you know? So have you ever experienced that in, in your practice? And like, how would you uh, recommend somebody? It's so weird to 
try and recommend a way to not do that because they're <laughs> going to use that as a means to do that. Yeah, it unfortunately, it's part of our culture. And I think the first thing that we need to do is to recognize that and acknowledge it. And if we think about um, some of the tantric philosophy has this idea of as above, so below. As it is in the macrocosm, so it is in the microcosm, that we have an, an a universe inside of us that is reflective of the universe outside of us, that the patterns that are in the universe and in the cosmos outside of us are the same patterns that are inside of our body. So if we think about this idea of extractivism, we can think about how um, we have been in this extractive relationship with nature, right? For since the industrial age, at least. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And and the damage that it has caused and how we have learned to be extractive in everything that we do, including our spiritual practice. And that if we turn that inward and we think about the place that maybe we're trying to get to, right, the promise of spiritual practice is connecting to your true self, understanding who you really are. And if we think about our true nature as being intricately connected to nature that we cognize as being outside of ourselves, then we can start to understand why it feels so natural for us to want to extract because that's the culture we've been brought into. And if we can think about this and say, okay, this extraction is also a form of resistance towards actually knowing who I am, how can I start to release this quality of extraction? How can I be in practice because I'm devoted to practice as opposed to I'm trying to get something? Yeah, you know, it seems to me that a big part of this transactionalism often stems from like a deep-seated insecurity or like a pain point and that I think what drives a lot of people most human action is a, a, a means to try and kind of add a balm to this like fundamental hurt that a lot of us feel or a sense of not having something there's this sense of ache that you know whether we go for a car or spiritual teachings or the perfect spouse or the job you know, there's this like fundamental like sense of not being enoughness that I think can be really uh, painful to touch. You know, could you could you maybe speak to how we can maybe make ourselves more resilient so that when we try to stop being so transactional, it's like, oh, yeah, but that means I'm just here with me and it hurts. And oh, my God, overwhelmed. <laughs> You're going really deep here, Brett. <laughs> We're going to need to go on retreat together. Yeah. Um, you know, what I would say is one of our main issues that I see is this idea of human supremacy. Mm. Right? Is that we, we put ourselves at the top of, of whatever else is here, whether it's nature, the other beings. Then that starts to relate to how... I treat other people who don't look like me, right? How I treat myself. What do I really think of myself? The overculture has created this um, container for us 
to feel that we are not enough. It's bad enough that we already have experiences in life and in childhood that tell us that we're not enough, right? Because we might have been raised by parents who were not skillful, who were not aware, who were not conscious. But the overculture is going to reinforce that idea. That's how they get us to buy things, right? It's like the car, the cute dress, the whatever the things are. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with buying the cute dress or the car, but understand the reason why it is that you are buying it. Yeah. Are you tapping in because you think that this is going to make you happier? This is going to make you better? This is going to make you shinier? And so we have to, again, this comes right back to this thread that we were on before about the self-inquiry, is asking yourself why. Knowing and having the discernment to understand what is it that motivates you? What is the deepest driving desire that motivates you? Is that desire something that is actually life-affirming? Or is that desire something that is going to be depleting? You know, it seems, I mean, this is all very deep work. And I feel like as we are doing these kinds of self-inquiries, I know for me, what's been really helpful, it's kind of a part of why I have a podcast, is being able to talk to other people about it. And I really like talking to other people from different traditions as well. And the slightly different nuances that, other people can bring to our internal investigations. So for you, how has community helped foster a sense of safety to do this stuff? And what do you feel for the folks who don't have access to community? Um, are there any like safety protocols? So like, all right, be prepared if you don't have community and you're doing this work, you know, how can we do this safely? Yeah, I mean, to, in my mind, uh, I don't believe there's such a thing as safe space. I believe that there is sacred space, right? Mm. And we need to be able to have and know what kind of support we need when things do get really sticky. It's one of the reasons why I mentioned in The Luminous Self and also in Radiant Rest that you need to have support and know what kind of support it is that you need, whether it's a trusted friend, a mentor, a teacher, a therapist, Right. Um, and I think the other thing is, is that we can reframe this idea of community, because sometimes when we think about community, it feels very big. Right. It feels like, oh, I need to have, you know, 20 people that are in my community in order to do this work. When the reality is that if you have one or two people in your circle of support, hopefully other people who are also in the process of doing this kind of work, you have someone or you have a couple of people that you can sit with and you can share notes and you can share experiences and you can talk openly without being fearful around some of these experiences that you might have or some of the realizations that you might have. Um, I think that's really, really important um, to be able to find those people. And there are people out there. There, I think community now is way more accessible than it ever has been because of things like Zoom, because of being able to 
find communities on Zoom, listen to podcasts. You know, there's Facebook groups everywhere that are spiritual communities. Um, you can go to meetups and or to your, your, your local yoga studio or your local Zen center and find um, community. So, and you can also ask friends of friends, you know, who do you know that I might be able to talk about this with? I think those things are really important. Yeah. So, you know, I have to double back because what you said was very provocative. Um, I think that that's a very great resource, um, everything that you detailed, but the, um, the statement that the, you don't believe in safe spaces and you see them as sacred spaces, I feel like that is counter to so much of a lot of the conversations that I am tapped into. So could you just elaborate on that a little bit more of what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think when, when you're creating a container of space, you don't know the experience of every single person that is coming into your space. And though we want to make sure that we try to make the space as safe as possible, that we have community agreements and that we all agree on these agreements, people make mistakes. They make mistakes in their perceptions. People are always growing in their consciousness and then their awareness. And because we don't know everyone's experience, it is possible that something could be said or done that makes a person not feel safe. So how would it, it's, I think it's irresponsible in some ways to proclaim that you're, that you're creating a, a safe and a space that is perfectly safe for every single human that is going to walk in the door. What we can agree on is that we're in sacred space and that we know that depending on the types of practices that you might be teaching, that things may come up that are uncomfortable. Let's discuss beforehand how we'll deal with those uncomfortable moments so that we can feel as held as possible. I love that. Yeah, that leads really nicely to something I wanted to bring up and, you know, without spoiling anything from your book, but you do recount some stories in there about uncomfortable situations that actually propelled you, you know, in your journey forward. So I'm kind of curious about your interpretation of the role of discomfort um, and sometimes like tragedy. You know, sometimes these can be like amazing catalysts, but it's obviously something that we don't wish upon anybody else. But hmm. how do we turn this into fertile soil when it feels like our world's just bottomed out? Yeah, I, for me personally, I can only speak to discomfort because I haven't experienced tragedy in my life up to, up to now. Um, what I know about discomfort in the form of, let's say, a divorce, a business dissolving, a parent passing away, is that <clears throat> the discomfort for me has always been a portal to deeper understanding and awakening. And that's the, the portal that I have learned to sit in, right? And I've only learned to sit in that discomfort because of my self-inquiry practice, right? The, the inquiry first might have been, this feels really uncomfortable. I want to get away. 
I want to ignore it. I want to do something else. I want to not deal with you. And so my inquiry would then be, why? Let me inquire into why. What does this situation remind me of from the past that was really painful? Can I go back into that memory of the past and can I start to reframe that? Can I start to, first of all, look at what are maybe the gifts that came from that experience? What are the learnings that came from that experience? Can I also recognize that whatever is happening in the present moment is not related to the past? I'm not in the past anymore. I'm in the present. And how can I use this moment and experience this moment as an expansion and a learning in a different way? So when you say sitting in the portal, um, you know, and you just describe that process. What does that look like? Like if, if you're just like <laughs> literally your... sitting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. that's kind of what it, I thought it, it was. Yeah. It literally feels like for me, um, sitting, listening, perhaps lying down, perhaps bringing questions into the dream realm and receiving answers perhaps sitting with a trusted friend and sharing with them what I'm going through so that they can reflect and I can learn in that reflection. Um, It really means the sitting in, to me, means not running away. It means taking a moment to go, ooh, I know this feeling, this feeling that normally would make me bolt, (laughs) right? Let me be with it. And I might have to be with it for a long time and in many different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes in these uncomfortable moments, um, there can be a very powerful energy to the emotions that animates you. You know, some people might experience anger and they feel this, this like charge and it can be really right, uncomfortable. Right, you just froze. Oh, can you still sure. hear me now? Now I can hear you, but you froze, okay. you froze yeah. for, you were just saying about the emotions, the powerful emotions that could come up. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some of these uncomfortable experiences can bring about the powerful emotions that animate us. You know, it can maybe come out as anger or um, where you feel like you need to like hit something or you have to, you know, a lot of people experience very intense, fiery, painful almost, you know, so how, how do we learn how to sit in that? You know, like there's, there's a, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening who are like, yeah, yeah, right. If you tried to sit with the things that I experienced, like, whoa, you know, like how, what would you say to the people that don't have a strong resiliency to these emotions? Yeah, that's a great question. And so that goes back to what I just said about being with, right? So we can say that being with the emotion, what does what does it feel like in your body to be with it? Like, first of all, just notice it. One of the practices that I really love to do is a shaking practice. Uh, it was a practice that I learned uh, from a dear friend, Rod Mose, a long time ago um, that he called Jibba Jabba. And this is a practice of really just letting the whole body shake. The whole body just shakes and you just say jibba jabba jibba jabba jibba jabba over and over so that you're not giving more energy to the thing that you're angry about or sad about but it's just coming out as a sound right and yeah. you allow yourself to release that 
in that way to, to move energy through your body. So my experience has been that whenever I'm feeling overwhelming emotions, that moving my body, shaking my body actually helps me to come back and regulate my nervous system. And then I can come back to that free writing practice around Mm. what did this feel like? What was this shade of color? What was the image that came with it? And really have a full 3D recounting of what that felt like so that I can learn from it. Wow. Yeah, it kind of the visual that I had is like a pressure release valve to keep it from like blowing a gasket, but you're still connecting with the energy and it's moving through you rather than numbing with like a substance or blanking out to TV or, you know, a myriad of ways we all kind of numb out. Um, You know, with that, you did say something that kind of tipped me off because my original um, interest in your work was with Yoga Nidra. You said kind of down-regulating the nervous system a little bit. This is something that I find to be uh, the most prominent in my life right now because I have so many friends like you should probably do yoga nidra. <laughs> so what exactly is the process of yoga nidra and maybe how does it relate to our uncovering of this luminous self? Yeah, it's directly related. Um, you know, the it's interesting because I think about the two books that I've most recently written, Radiant Rest and The Luminous Self. Radiant rest, I feel like, is the energy of the moon, and luminous self is the energy of the sun. And so you get the rest and the the activity in, in both of these books. And really with radiant rest and yoga nidra, yoga nidra is this practice that, first of all, we, we need to kind of define yoga nidra in a different way, because yoga nidra, when we hear about it, we think about the technique. That's what we're kind of trained to think about in the Western culture. You think about this technique of yoga nidra, which is this also known as uh, sleep with a slight trace of awareness, like conscious sleep, enlightened sleep. There's so many different ways that it can be described. But in general, when we think about being uh, doing yoga nidra, right, and, and we have to take the doing out of that because yoga nidra is actually the practice of non-doing, right? But when we think about this idea of doing yoga nidra in quotation marks, um, we think about the act of, of lying down in a supine position, of being guided by a teacher to notice our breath. We may start to breathe diaphragmatically. We may start to notice that we're being held by the earth. We may begin to feel that the earth is rising and holding us when we inhale and that we can allow our body to soften on the exhale. We may be guided to move consciousness throughout the body. Um, We, you know, do a body scan or to soften or let go at certain parts of the body. Um, And that is really more of a deep relaxation technique that we're being taught. That deep relaxation technique is the preparation for the state of yoga nidra. And we can think about the state of yoga nidra when we think about what are the other states. So we're in the waking state. There's the dreaming state. There's the deep sleep state. And there is this place called the fourth state, which is turiya, or this place that's known as the fourth. We can think about that place as the void that is both full 
and empty at the same time, that there's infinite potential and unbound pure consciousness. That's a space that when we arrive there, it is a place that is said to be peace beyond words and really a place that cannot be described. And yoga nidra, the state of yoga nidra, is like the portal just before we move into that space of Turiya. So we're talking about not only the technique of yoga nidra, the state of yoga nidra, and then we can also talk about yoga nidra as a goddess that is written about in uh, the Devi Mahatmya and other sacred texts, that she is the one that has the power of repose. She is the one who has the power of this, this deep, dreamless sleep that she took her seat in Vishnu when he was in between this kind of place of creation and recreation in a deep sleep of time called a kalpa, and that even the gods are helpless without this power of repose. And so if we think about the goddess Yoga Nidra as this power, we don't need to think about her as personified, but if we think about the power of nurturing, the power of healing nectar, the power of, of moonlight and what moonlight feels like when you, when you feel it and sense it around you, it's the, this power of just being soft and open and relaxed and this power of non-doing. So there's lots of things happening in that Yoga Nidra um, practice um, but I think the, the biggest thing that can happen in yoga nidra is that we release everything that we are not and we touch into this place within us that is always at rest. Mm -hmm. It really brings us to touching the true self more in, in a way that I feel like no other practice does because we are in this place of receptivity while we're lying yeah. down. Wow, that's wonderful. So how do you feel from your experience, this has kind of permeated your day-to-day -day waking um, kind of consciousness? Like, is there a kind of a process of unfolding? And <clears throat> is there, I mean, there's probably no expectation for how that manifests in someone's life, but from your experience, how do you feel over time that this has impacted your, just everything? It's a great question because, you know, a lot of people when they practice yoga nidra, they think of, oh, I'm getting a yoga nap or <laughs> I'm going to get some rest, right? Yoga nidra wakes you up to your life because it really is about staying awake and aware that there's some part of our consciousness that can remain awake and aware even while the body is sleeping. So imagine that you are awake and aware through all the states of consciousness and that this, this state of Turiya, this fourth state, is the, is the thing that holds all the other states of consciousness and that we're somehow connected to just the very entry to that portal even when we're awake. Yeah. So what what does that mean? That's a question that I would like people to just contemplate. What does it mean to be awake in all the states of consciousness? Yeah. You know, it's it seems to me kind of going back to our 
previous topic of dealing with anger and really heightened emotions, that this would be a really useful um, relationship to have with that layer of ourself because when we're in those moments, maybe we could get insight rather than just react out of the anger and to go along with the energy of it and lash out in whatever way. But there's a part of us that is aware and observant and it's probably wanting to give us that insight and it maybe makes us more susceptible. Yeah, you. I think you described it very well. It has the possibility to allow you to be awake to everything. Yeah. And I think the more we practice, the more awake we, we become, the more aware we become. So how does this, I, I'm always interested in how internal practice um, affects our ability to have relationships. As somebody who studies like Mahayana Buddhism, you know, the whole thing is about service and interacting with others. And, you know, I feel like connecting to the, the Yoga Nidra state and having that sense of underlying uh, hum, I guess is what I'd call it, you know, from your experience, has that changed the way you have relationships and deal with other people's kind of neuroses and their agitations? I think that it's made me more compassionate, right? Because in a, the little bit of awakeness that I have and awareness that I have, I see the connection from one person to myself. Mm. So it dissolves this idea or this veil that there actually is another, right? It allows me to take that whatever I'm experiencing from someone in my heart. Doesn't mean that I don't have times of like reacting to someone's, you know, what I'm perceiving as their nonsense or their thing that's happening. But it gives me, when I'm really paying attention, it allows me to pause, not to react to go back into the inquiry, to be in compassion. And I think that um, all of my relationships over the years have really benefited from the practice of Yoga Nidra, absolutely, and from the practices that I've done for the last 28 years. And it's also allowed me to draw more clearly those sacred boundaries that we were talking about earlier, is that sometimes, um, at least for me, there are relationships that are not for me in this lifetime. And I'm very clear about that. So I guess, how do you know those? I feel like there's a lot of people that could really kind of use that teaching. I know, I mean, from even my past, I've definitely engaged with people for long periods of time that looking back, I'm like, oh, why was I doing like, that was not the, the way. <laughs> You know, is there a subtle sense that you pick up to develop that ability? I think that for me um, to share the easiest way is to really ask the question, and we talked about this a little bit before, is this relationship life-affirming or mm -hmm. is it depleting? Is this relationship in alignment with my dharma or is it adharmic? If it's adharmic, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I know for me, when I was in my his darkest, um, before I ever started any sort of self-inquiry, I don't know if I knew what was dharmic. I don't know if I, like, 
acknowledging that level of confusion and just obscuration. Like there were so many layers of confusion that I wouldn't have ever been able to access that had certain key transitionary moments kind of been met. You know, so if somebody's listening to this, I don't know why they would if they're not already tuning in. They're like, what do you, what do you mean, Dharmic? Like, what, like, how would I ever know what's good for me? Yeah, that's, how, that's why we practice. Yeah. That's why we practice. And this is why we practice so that we know, as opposed to outsourcing our knowing to someone else who's going to tell mm. us what's best for us. And so it's not to say that you don't have a teacher who can guide you and ask you the questions that lead you to understand what is best for you or to maybe look and make observations that, oh, maybe this isn't the best thing. And can I, can I ask the right questions that will help the person lead themselves to the, to the answer that is right for them? And you have to keep practicing and be devoted to your practice because your your devotion to your practice is actually a form of self-devotion and that's self with a capital s that means that you're you're devoted to connecting to this part of you that is bigger than anything you could ever imagine more connected to all the beings and the universe in ways that we can't imagine and so that it does require a little bit of of trust and of, of faith in the process of, of the practice. Mm, I love that. So, you know, we are coming up on time and I'm kind of curious for kind of like a closing out question. Uh, what is your daily practice? If, if you don't mind me asking, cause I know there's so many different kinds of meditations. Do you want for the people who are like, I'd like to start a daily practice. <laughs> like, like, do they tra- change up their practice every day or do they find one and kind of hunker down? Or how would you guide people into forming a deeper relationship? Yeah, my, my suggestion is to choose a practice that resonates with you. Maybe it's a practice that you just did last week or maybe it's a practice that you did 20 years ago that you still remember. Mm-hmm. right? That the power of that practice is still living within you. Commit yourself and devote yourself to doing that practice every day for the next 40 days. So choose something that's within your means as far as time as being able to dedicate yourself to. Maybe make a list of all the ways in which you distract yourself and waste time and then take one of those things off your list of things that you do for the next 40 days so that you can replace that with the life-affirming practice that you want to devote yourself to for the next 40 days. Follow that with a little bit of free writing every day after practice, and you will notice a wholesale change of something in your life. Wow, I love that. Yeah, I think having the time constraint makes it a little bit more um, accessible. You know, when I started, I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to do this thing every day until I die. (laughs) For me, that worked. But I know I I try to teach people meditation and they're like, wait, you want me to do this even for two weeks? Like, uh, maybe I'll do one week. It's like, all right, well, then start there. So, yeah, um, 
what's next? How do people plug in with your work and where can people find you if they're really feeling just kind of your resonance? Yeah. So um, the best way to experience my my work is probably through the book Radiant Rest if you're interested in Yoga Nidra. Um, this book comes with uh, six downloadable practices. So when you get the book, you can go to the how to use the book chapter and that gives you the link. The Luminous Self uh, is coming out October 10th. If you want to drop in with that work, if you pre-order the book, um, you can join my free book club, which is a four-week book club where we drop in really deep to some of the practices and concepts in the book. The great thing is that this book also comes with uh, six downloadable practices plus two bonus practices from the book. So once you buy it, you can be doing the practices right away as well. And if you're more of an in-person um, vibe that you want to experience Yoga Nidra in person. I'll be on the East Coast um, teaching Yoga Nidra at Menla uh, up in Phoenicia, New York, which is a very sacred land to be practicing rest practices and dream practices. Um, and then I'll be in Costa Rica as well. So you can find out all about those things um, at my website, Tracy with two E's, stanley.com. And I'll obviously have all of that in the description. Real quick, do you have a recommendation if someone wants to get both of your books? Is there one that kind of lends itself more as a starter or does it really matter where you kind of choose your adventure? Yeah, I, I would start with Radiant Rest because I think that we're all exhausted to some degree. We need to rest. And I think that that is where I would start doing those practices those practices will help to reveal a lot of the information and wisdom and remembering that you can then take into the practice of the luminous self. So I would start with radiant rest, get rested. That's the most important thing, be rested. And then when you're ready to move on to um, really kind of continuing to uncover your true power and your wholeness, then come to Luminous Self. If you already have a Yoga Nidra practice, Luminous Self is is a great place to start as well. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I want to say uh, it's been a real treat uh, and it's been um, a good addition to my fall reading list to be moving through the Luminous Self. It really is an amazing piece of work. Thank you. I feel like it's it's both. It has the depth and it also is introducing reintroducing me to some really core yogic principles that it's like, oh yeah. So really, really good job. Thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brett. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end again. Tracy Stanley. One incredible person. Uh, head on over to her website. That is tracystanley.com. T R A C E E S T A N L E Y. Uh, again, if you want to order her book, which I recommend, I have just finished it and it is pretty dang phenomenal. Go to shambhala.com. That is S H A M B H A L A. 
and pre-order the book before October 10th and use the code LOOM30. That is L-U-M-3-0. All right, that's all the spelling that I can do. If you want to support this show, of course, head on over to patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism. Leave me a small tip. You know, that really helps. We're in that day and age where you just have to ask. Otherwise, you don't get the things that you need in life. Uh, you can also just subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, any and above, any and all of the above. Great. Love it. Amazing. Thank you so much for listening again. That was it. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye.